This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Check Engine Light by Mel Bosworth and a documentary about sharks by Gavin Broom. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. While there, check out our news blog. You can also find links to us on Facebook and MySpace. Also on our website is the Bound Off Bookstore in affiliation with Amazon. There you can purchase the book Serpent Box by Vincent Lewis Carella. Check Engine Light, written by Mel Bosworth, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 8 minutes, 30 seconds. As Michael Tucker drove west down leaf-strewn Harkness Boulevard, the check engine light flickered anxiously on the dashboard. His fingertips drummed a patch of silver hair just above his ear, while dark-rimmed eyes sought out a place to pull over. In lattice sunlight that shone through the bare branches of a maple tree, he parked and shut off the engine. Up the street, children huddled tightly as they waited curbside for the bus to take them to school. Michael considered their smiles and ruddy cheeks. The boys wore two long jeans that pooled on their shoe tops. The girls were bucktooth and gangly. The boys would grow into their jeans, the girls into their bodies. With a trembling hand, Michael flattened a thought against his chest. Starting the car, the check engine light still beckoned. He returned to the driveway he'd left only minutes before. His black shoes clacked hurriedly up the cobblestone walkway. He glanced at his neighbor's manicured lawns and spotty red bushes, the growth stalled and the leaves choked by an early frost. Finding the front door locked, he craned his neck and squinted through a sidelight with swirling nickel caming while fishing keys from his wool spore coat. Entering, he called out to his wife. Laura, I need to borrow your car this morning. The Subaru is acting up on me, and I don't want to risk getting stuck in the city. Laura? The house was bright and quiet. Even the row of potted rosary vines hanging from hooks along a rustic crossbeam in the foyer was motionless. Listening intently, he heard a fluttering busyness coming from the upstairs bedroom. He went up and opened the door. Laura stood naked on the bed her hair wet and drawn back into a dark ponytail. A length of rope was tied over a crossbeam. Her thin fingers fumbled with the knots of a noose. I need to borrow your car this morning, Laura. The Subaru's acting up. She didn't look at him. Her pastel skin reflected light that gushed through a window in the sloped ceiling. She let the noose fall from her hands. It grazed her knocked knees and landed at her feet that were pressed in the cool, bunched blankets of an unmade bed. Michael, grappling comprehension, staggered into a mahogany end table. A green vase of withering red roses teetered, then fell, shattering on the hardwood floor. He went to the bedroom and fetched a robe. Kicking off his shoes, he climbed onto the bed. He put the robe around her shoulders. She kept her head turned away. As he tied the belt at her waist, his fingers brushed the raised scar from her C-section. 
Her body retreated as if burned. She let go a whimper. He eased her down into a prone position and covered her with a blanket. He stroked her hair until her eyes closed. Rising, he gathered the rope and spun it into a ball. In the kitchen, he emptied the trash barrel onto the floor and stuffed the rope in the bottom. He covered it with garbage, placing the roses on top. Returning to the bedroom, he swept the broken vase into a dustpan, careful not to disturb Laura as she rested. Back in the city, gray towers loomed like discordant thoughts over the hustle on the sidewalks. Glancing at his wristwatch, Michael jogged to the revolving doors of a building. Defensive pink palms pressed against the twirling glass as business suits entered and exited. Inside, Michael nodded to a security guard dressed in black pants and a white shirt that strained against his rounded belly. Good morning, Mr. Tucker. He rode the elevator to the 16th floor. Pacing hard down the hallway, he passed billowing skirts and waxed legs, clean faces and strong cologne, ringing phones and chatter. A tall man, young and square-jawed, slid in front of him. Michael, I've been looking for you. I need to show you the Haskins report. Michael took the report and flipped through it. The man watched him nervously, eyes twitching. Everything should be here, he said. Does it look all right to you? Michael pressed it to the man's chest. It looks fine. Are you all right, Michael? You're sweating. Michael ignored the question and sidestepped around him. Outside his office, a plump woman in a red dress looked up from scattered papers on a desk. Good morning, Michael. Can I get you a coffee? No. Don't forget, you have a meeting in the lounge in 15 minutes. Thanks. Michael closed the door behind him and went to his desk. He pulled a small bottle of whiskey from the top drawer. Unscrewing the cap, he looked out the window at the street below. A congestion of cars slugged beneath the sun like insignificant, wounded ants that didn't know any better. He held the bottle beneath his nose and inhaled deeply. Then he threw it against the window. The glass spider webbed upon impact, but didn't break. The bottle landed on the carpet with a muted thud, brown liquid pulsing from the mouth, feeding thirsty fibers. There was a knock on the door. Michael, is everything all right in there? It was the voice of the woman in the red dress. Everything is fine. I'll be out in a minute. In a modest corner bathroom, he splashed cold water onto his cheeks and straightened his tie in the mirror careful not to meet his eyes. He came out of the office. Donna, please keep this door closed. I'm tired of people coming in here when I'm not around. In the lounge, Michael sat at the head of a long, polished table. He laced his fingers and kept his head down. Soon the room filled with suits and close-cropped hair. A man with horn-rimmed glasses leaned over and asked, Michael, would you like to begin? I have to go. Excuse me? Michael's head shot up, and the man jerked with a surprise. "'My car,' said Michael. "'Are you all right?' the man asked, confused. "'You look very pale.' Michael looked at the boyish faces around the table. Once knowing and accessible, but now ignorant, frozen, their eyes flickered like flames amidst the ice as they pondered him. To them, he was now foreign, a middle-aged man who had already buried more in his life than they'd fleetingly fathomed to birth.' Michael stood roughly, upending his chair, and left the room. He ran down the hallway, 
Donna, peering into his office, stiffened and turned when she heard the fast footfalls. Michael? He spiraled down sixteen flights of concrete stairs. In the lobby, the security guard rose. He spoke into a microphone strapped to his shoulder. He's coming now. He moved in front of Michael and held out his arms. Mr. Tucker, please slow down. What's wrong? My car, said Michael, breathless. What's wrong with your car, sir? Has there been an accident? Michael writhed in his suit, in his skin. His eyes were wild, his face flushed and streaming. Please, James, he pleaded. James nodded and stepped aside. Michael fought through revolving doors to the street. James shook his head wearily and sat down. The phone at his station rang. Hello? Yes, he just left. Yes. Yes, sir. You have a good day, too. The lobby was empty. James took a cell phone from his pocket and called his wife. He asked how the children were. He told her he loved her. He told her to tell the children he loved them. Leaning back in his chair, his index finger moved from side to side over his white mustache. He studied the black marble floor. He did this for a long time. The End Mel Bosworth lives and breathes in Massachusetts. In addition to writing, he enjoys quiet time with Henry the Cat. More of his work can be found at eddiesacco.blogspot.com. A documentary about sharks. Written by Gavin Broom. Read by Vincent Lewis Carella. Listening time, 13 minutes, 25 seconds. As I lean over the chrome rail and look at the floor on the street level of the mall, I ask myself a question. If I was to fall, I wonder if it would be better to land and lie there with my eyes open or closed. Closed, I decide, would make me look like I was at peace. Open would freak the shit out of people. And one eye open and one eye closed would just look stupid. I'm left in no doubt that if I did fall, it'd be the last one the fucking goofball expression, that I'd be stuck with forever and that would be the one photographed on a hundred cell phones and Bluetoothed around high school. That would be the picture sitting on Brit Hume's shoulder on Fox News. See anyone interesting, Mackenzie? Carter asks as he shuffles back to me from Ben and Jerry's. He has an XL tub of Chunky Monkey in one hand and a plastic spoon in the other. I thought I saw your mom while I was waiting in line, I say but it turned out to be a tramp. He doesn't laugh and starts scooping into his tub. Funny, he says, with a full mouth, his bottom lip and tongue smeared with ice cream, making him look rabid. So we stand at the railing and watch the crowd buzz around below us while Carter noisily works his way into the tub. They're like sharks, aren't they, he says, interrupting me as I try to decide if falling face down or up would be better if I would rather see the ground rushing toward me or the skylight pulling away. What's like sharks? All of them, he indicates by waving his spoon around the empty space on the other side of the rail. A small bomb of melted ice cream falls two stories, misses some chick's HMV bag by an inch, and lands unnoticed on the mall floor. Look at the way they move, the way they hunt. Jesus, give them a fucking dorsal fin and they'll be all set. 
I sigh and turn so I'm facing Ben and Jerry's and Subway and all the other units that make up the food hall. Each has a queue waiting at the counters, mostly of people who don't look in the least bit hungry. That's a pretty weak metaphor, dude. You think? Yeah, I think. I mean, they don't swim. They don't go around killing people or destroying boats or chewing through power cables reading dolphins or shit like that. Carter laughs and shakes his head. Mackenzie, do you even know what a shark is? First, they don't eat each other, okay? They're not cannibals. Second, it's dolphins who attack sharks, not the other way around. And third, there are like 300 species of shark in the world. Did I say anything about great whites? Did I? No. No. I said they looked like sharks. General. Unspecific. He leans forward on the rail. Take my word for it, there are many colors in the shark rainbow, my friend, and pretty much every single one of them is on view down there in the pool. I go back to the position I was in when I was thinking about my eyes being open or closed. Okay, smart guy, I say, point out the nurse sharks for me. Nurse sharks? He shrugs and pops another spoonful in his mouth. No problem. Holding the spoon beneath his teeth like it's a cigar, he points to a bunch of emo kids. They're sitting on the low marble wall around a fake tree in the shadows under the stairs near the information board. The nurse shark spends its days hanging around in inactive groups, giving the impression that it isn't socially retarded. At night, however, it reverts to form, becomes a solitary animal, and spends its time jacking off in its bedroom to panic at the disco videos. You're making this shit up, I say. What? No, I swear to God I saw it on Discovery. Well, everything except the jacking off stuff. I can't tell if he really has committed a bunch of shark facts to memory or not. Either way, I have to let it go, as I need all my brain power to think up another species that isn't a great white. How about a bull shark, I try? He laughs. You're not even trying, are you? I'm pretty sure you could pick out the fucking bull shark. It takes less than five seconds to spot a bull shark, and as it turns out, it's someone I know. Derek Brown is in my ear, and he's about as wide as he is tall. He's got a brow you could ski down and a chin that would give a decent right angle to any math kid who'd forgotten a protractor. He's a regular Johnny fucking football hero, and he knows it. For around 30 seconds or so, I follow his progress through the mall toward a small group of preppy girls hanging around outside Abercrombie and Fitch. During this short trip, he gives an iron shoulder to two shoppers who have the nerve to walk through his airspace. The only thing that breaks his stride is when he must sense my eyes on the back of his head and he stops, sneers up at me, and flips me the finger. Okay, I concede. Bad choice. But Carter seems to have grown tired of the discussion and is wandering back toward the food hall, his head lowered as he continues to dig at his ice cream. So I'm thinking we start off here, he says, when he sees me walking towards him. He doesn't try to keep his voice down, even with people passing so close by. No one pays us a second glance. We're just two guys hanging out in the mall, talking shit. In the food hall? In the food hall. It's cornered. People are sitting down. There's no easy means of escape. There's the escalators. They go down as well as up, you know. True but it's a total bottleneck. The bastards will be falling over themselves to get away. Think about it. 
Think about trying to run down the up escalator when there's a guy pointing an M16 at your back, or taking a spill along with 50 other assholes and landing in a mess of bones and blood, or saying fuck it and taking your chances along the mezzanine while I strafe your ass. Two words. Fucking chaos. The idea of falling down an escalator makes me wince. It sounds a far too painful way to go. All good points, I say, while my thoughts stray back to Derek Brown and the look on his face as he flipped me the bird. But to do any of that, they need to get by us, and the only way they can get by us is to rush us. It just takes one bull shark, and we're screwed. Carter scratches his head and sizes up the area around us, looking like he's doing nothing more adventurous than searching for a garbage can. Yeah, the world's full of fucking heroes. Plus, I continue, there are tables to hide behind, counters to dive over, and I guess every one of these places has a kitchen or something at the back. And besides, how are you planning on getting the M16s in here anyway? I, I thought you were going for something more compact, like me. I thought you were going with the Glock. He shakes his head. My old man would notice if the Glock went missing. He keeps the M16 locked up in a cupboard out of view. It could be gone for weeks before he'd have any cause to realize it's gone. But if it's locked... There's no point in locking a cupboard if you're dumb enough to keep the key on a chain in the garage. I got a copy cut last week. And we get the rifles in here, how? Carter winks at me. Your stupidly oversized Adidas bag, Mackenzie, my friend. It was bound to come in useful for something sooner or later. The Adidas bag is legendary. Aunt Sylvie gave me it when I started high school, thinking I needed to lug an entire library around with me each day. Seriously, I'm 5'10 and I can sit in it like it's a goddamn kayak. I stopped taking it to school when I started getting beat up about it, and now it collects dust in the corner of my room where it's home for a ton of old sneakers and a couple of pornos. Carter and I eyeball each other for a few seconds, not saying a word, not even breathing it seems, and I realize he's deadly serious about all this. He's serious about the guns, the bag, the food hall, everything. I mean, I guess at no point did I think he was joking, but now, just from looking into his eyes and seeing the intensity, I'm certain. My old man's eyes do the same thing, just before he kicks the shit out of my mom. Carter's there in front of me, and he's conscious and living, but part of him, a fucking important part of him, is a million miles away, thinking about stuff the rest of the world won't comprehend. Maybe he's talking to God. Now, Carter says out of nothing, and then walks past me to the escalators, security. I follow him. Security. We take the escalator down to the second floor. Carter sticks his spoon into what's left of his ice cream, like a gravedigger taking a break. At least two guards on each floor, he says, as we glide down a level toward Walmart. One in the North Mall, one in the South, and they're not the fastest movers in the world. That time Ricky got caught shoplifting and he freaked out with the knife, it took them five minutes to get enough bodies over there to get him to the ground, and they had to keep him pinned for another twenty before the cops showed up. I remember hearing that about Ricky. I also remember hearing that he was a month in the hospital afterwards and three months in plaster and then six in jail. As I think about this, we pass two guys from school on the up escalator. One of them calls us faggots while the other spits on Carter's back before both of them erupt in scalding laughter. Unperturbed, Carter goes on. So I don't think we'll be interrupted until we get down here. Here we'll get resistance, no doubt. There's always a guard near Walmart, sometimes more. Today the guard is a black guy who looks in his 40s or 50s, but still looks like he can take care of himself. A gray cap displays a gold badge and sits squarely on his bald head, and the crease line in his shirt and pants is perfect. 
His eyes have a similar distance to what I saw in Carter's and my old man's, but it's from a totally different place. The storm is swirling around this guy, and he's the calm in the center. Everything about him suggests ex-military. I imagine my brains and skull and blood splattered on Walmart's window, looking like an obscene sale sticker. He could break me in two, I mutter, never so sure of anything in my life. If Carter hears me, he ignores me. This is going to sound fucking controversial, but if we get this far, and I think we will, and if we set foot on the second floor, I say we go into Walmart. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking we should keep to the concourse, but that's what everyone else will be thinking. We'll survive longer if we're in the store. I'm sure of it. We wander through the store. Carter soaks up the layout. I just follow quietly at the back. Before we leave, he buys a pink Cherry Coke trucker hat for ten bucks. While we're being served, he whispers to me that the cameras will be picking this up, and then, at a regular volume, he says to the assistant, They called me a faggot. This'll show them. The assistant, maybe twenty, bored, forces a smile and doesn't tell either of us to have a nice day. On the way out, Carter puts on the hat and the price tag dangles down against his temple. He tells me that he might add this to his official uniform. Then he makes noises toward random shoppers that I'm sure are supposed to be shotgun blasts. Boom! Only one person, a hot woman, looks at him. And when she does so, it's only for a moment and her eyes widen before they drop to the floor as if to say, what an asshole. She's right. When she's past us, I turn and watch her ass as it chews its way along the aisle. There are many truly beautiful things in this world, and sometimes that's easy to forget. We go down another escalator onto the street level where the emos are still hanging around under the stairs, but Derek Brown and the preppies have disappeared. So we're good for tomorrow, yeah? Carter asks as we move toward the exit. We cut last class, get ourselves set up, we're good to go. I don't say anything because I don't like thinking about it. I don't like thinking about next week's South Park or my birthday next month or seeing Jennifer Colbecki wearing that blue and white hoop sweater one more time. It's not that I haven't accepted these things, it's just that I don't like dwelling on it too much. Carter, though, seems to interpret my silence as second thoughts. This is the thing you've got to remember about sharks, Mackenzie. They've got this badass reputation. People think they're killers, that they're ruthless, and I guess some of them are. Mostly, though, they're all teeth and fins and fuck all else. There's no great white in here. The great white is a lie. But if it did exist, it'd be us, and Discovery will say so. I know, dude, I'm cool. He looks at me, and his eyes now searching into me, and his face taut and serious. I need to know I can rely on you. You can, Carter. I told you I'm cool. His face softens into a wide smile, and he slaps me on the back. Tomorrow we have some fun. He dunks his empty ice cream tub into a garbage can and we walk through the automatic doors, leaving all the sharks for one more day, and the last thought that goes through my mind before the sun hits my eyes is that I'm probably going to take Carter out first. Gavin Broom lives in the Scottish countryside with his wife and his cat. He dreams of the day his writing earns him enough to buy a house at the beach. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.